So we begin our reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we continue in chapter 7. So reading from Acts 6, 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law, so they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? For the next 49 verses, Stephen gives an account of the history of Israel and how they had rejected and turned away from God throughout their history. And we start reading again, in chapter 7, verse 51. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the Righteous One, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, uh, keep your Bibles open if you had them open and you will certainly be 
better off if you're able to have in front of you the talk outline with all of the gaps. I will put the answers to the gaps on the screen and with all of our blue pins. I went and bought another 50 pins this week because we were missing a few, so there's a couple around there. Grab them, fill them in along the way with the blanks and uh, that'll help us follow what God is telling us now in the scriptures. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we ask now that by your spirit you might speak to us and as we have a look at the life of this remarkable man, Stephen, we pray that as we read this, you would inspire us to remain faithful to you even in the midst of great trials. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, Mandy and I had an opportunity to hear a talk from Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi, uh, who is from the Diocese of Josh in northern Nigeria. Ben is the man that took over from our own Archbishop Peter Jensen uh, as the new General Secretary of GAFCON, which is the uh, movement of global Orthodox Anglicans. Now, last week I started reading his brand new biography, which is fascinating. Uh, he tells a story in, in particular of how his church and home were torched and bombed by Muslim extremists who were intent on driving out the Christians and establishing Sharia law. And when the militants were finished with his home, there was nothing left at all except part of a metal chalice and a small gold cross. That was it. This is the kind of persecution that we see at places in the, in the first century in the book of Acts. And it's the kind of attacks that we saw last week in the early church. And we saw last week that persecution is one of the ways in which the devil seeks to stop the growth of the church. The Jewish enemies of Jesus had rounded up the 12 apostles and they tried them in a court. And then after that, they thought, well, we've got to try and shut them up somehow, so we will flog them. And so they did, almost to death. But it didn't stop them. All it did was just fire them up and gave them more passion to talk about Jesus more and more. Another thing that the devil also tried to do to stop the church growing was to tempt the church to be distracted by administration. And so what did they do to fix that problem so that the 12 apostles wouldn't be caught up in doing admin? Well, they appointed seven men who we read were full of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God. These seven men were going to have special leadership roles. But they weren't just people who sat behind spreadsheets, not that there's anything wrong with that. These were people who were awesome, powerful preachers. These administrators were amazing preachers. They were amazing leaders within the church. And today we get to meet one of those guys. His name is Stephen and he is amazing. We pick up the action at Acts chapter 6 verse 8 and we read... That Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Uh, this is a description of how he did his ministry, how he did his administry. Uh, people were overwhelmed with the way that God was using Stephen to do amazing things. But it wasn't so much the miracles that had the biggest effect on people. It was actually what he was talking about. It was what he said. That was so controversial. We read in verse 9 and 10 that one day 
some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, this particular synagogue, this assembly of Jews, they started to debate with Stephen. They were Jews from all over the place, Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia and the province of Asia. None of these men could stand against the wisdom of the spirit, uh, wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. This particular fairly multicultural Jewish assembly thought that they were going to have verbal biff with Stephen and have this kind of debate, parliament style, to, to try and say, no, you're wrong. And then he would say, well, this is the truth. And away they went. But the problem was, it didn't matter what they said or how they said it. It was clear that they were not winning. Stephen's arguments just made a whole lot of sense. And we know why. It's because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so they thought, we're not happy with this. We're not stopping him by logic, by debate. So we're going to have to stop him another way. I wonder if you've actually had that kind of experience where you hear someone speak with such power and truth and yet you're confused why others don't accept it as well. You can have two people listening to the same message about Jesus and one will walk away and say, oh, isn't that awesome? I just understand so much more about why Jesus is Lord and Saviour and how much he loves me and how much he's forgiven me. And then the person sitting next to you can say, oh, what a load of rubbish. The one message can have such a divided result, and that is what was happening right here. And this bunch of people from this synagogue of freed slaves, they wanted to shut Stephen down. So how do they go about doing it? Well, we read in verse 11 and 12 that they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, oh, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Well, that revved people up. We read here that it roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious laws. They were really upset about that. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. It's all happening again. The Jews used lies to try and shut Stephen down. They claimed that Stephen had said things that were negative about Moses. This great leader of the Old Testament and the man through whom God gave the law. I mean, Moses is kind of the untouchable. You don't want to speak badly of him. But they said that Stephen was. No wonder they were a bit revved up about it. See, I, I reckon I feel that sometimes when I hear people talk badly about Jesus. See, for these guys, they were revved up when they heard him speak badly about Moses, even though he didn't. But when we hear someone use Jesus' name as a swear word, or, or maybe there's, there's something that they say about Jesus that, that is really horrible and defames him, you kind of, I hope you, if you're a follower of Jesus that you get revved up a bit, that it sort of turns your guts a bit. That is what is happening here. But the problem is it's a lie. Because Stephen wasn't speaking about Moses like that at all. When we feel that, when people speak of Jesus in that kind of way, uh, our reaction is not to try and lie and stitch them up and get them killed or something like that. Uh, we follow Jesus and we turn the other cheek. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. But that's not the way in which these guys were operating. They wanted to shut them down. And so they spread more and more lies. Verse 13, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. 
They've tried to summarise what they don't like about Stephen in two things. They say that Stephen is anti the temple and that he's anti the law. That's his, they are the big accusations. He's anti the temple and he's anti the law. And so verse 14 he says, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and that he'll change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, is that a fair call? Uh, did Stephen actually say that? Or do we think that Stephen actually said that? Well, when you think about it, Jesus did say, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And that's a fair point. Although we know that he was talking about his own body, you know, he would die and rise in three days. He wasn't talking about the actual stones and stuff. Uh, and whilst what Jesus said about how it is that you should live out the life of a follower of God, it seemed to be different to what was taught in the Old Testament in some ways. Jesus made it clear that he didn't abolish what was said in the Old Testament, but that he fulfilled it, that he actually brought it to its logical next step when the Messiah comes. So was that a fair call? Should he? Is it a fair cop that he should say, well, yeah, actually, I... I I did talk about Jesus who said bad stuff about the temple and, and wasn't a fan of the law of Moses. Well, if we were running a fact check on it, there's websites all the time that'll ask whether something in particular is true or not, whether it's fake news or whatever. If we ran a fact check on the claims of the witnesses, I reckon the response probably would be not the full story. What is the full story? Well, we're going to see that in just a moment. Because... There is a clash in some way between what Jesus taught and what the Jews were doing and how they were living. And that's what's causing all this heat. Because if Jesus just said stuff that was completely compatible with them, they never would have executed Jesus. They never would have said he was blaspheming. They never would have said that he was anti the law and anti the temple. But at this point, things started to, as things started to heat up, we're told about a really interesting, in fact, remarkable fact about Stephen's appearance. Did you pick it up before when uh, it was being read out? It says, At this point, everyone in the High Council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Now, I don't think he was embarrassed. You know what it's like when you stand before a group of people and your face goes red. I, I don't think it's that kind of thing. In some sort of way, his face just started to glow. It was a supernatural thing. Now, what, why is that significant to us? Well, on the one hand, it shows that there's a supernatural element of what's happening right here. This is just not your everyday kind of chat. But there's something more. I think we're supposed to see a connection there, that Stephen's face lit up like Moses's. If you, if you read in the Old Testament, Moses went into the presence of God, and his face glowed so much so that he, they needed to put a veil on it because it was so embarrassing. Uh, there's a point where you can see that right at this moment, Stephen is kind of almost in the presence of God in this supernatural way. And something very special is about to happen as Stephen stands off here right in the presence of the most powerful Jewish man alive. And we read about him now in chapter 7, verse 1. This high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? They're good on the high priest for asking the question. 
Because these other guys have tried to stitch him up. Oh, he's anti the temple. Oh, he's anti the law of Moses. And the high priest says, well, what do you got to say for yourself? Are they true or not? Stephen could have said, well, there's more to the story. Or he could have said yes, or he could have said no. But what he says here is one of the most famous speeches of all time. And we are going to have a look at it now. Because right here, Stephen is standing in the same court that Jesus was as they said the similar kind of questions to him. Are you blaspheming? Are you the son of God? It's the same place. It's the same people. It's a few months later than Jesus' time. And he is in the hot seat. The same place where the apostles only a short while ago were dragged before, were whipped and were sent off. Now how would you respond in that situation? I reckon my knees would be knocking and I'd be kind of like, what do I do to get out of here? But a supernatural courage from the Spirit comes upon Stephen as he's glowing in the presence of God. And so he says this remarkable speech here. And it all begins in verse 2. Now during the course of this sermon now, I'm going to read out his whole speech. Um, I'm going to say a few verse, a few sentences and then say a couple of words and try and keep the pace going. But I think it's such a great speech, I want us to hear it together. So I'll read it out and say a few things along the way. He begins here, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he set it in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. And then God brought him here to the land where you now live. You kind of get the feeling it's going to be one of those long talks because he says, you know, give us a defense of what you're saying is true. Well, okay. Well, let's go back to the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible. And we'll start there. It's kind of like maybe he's thinking he's going to get out of this alive because they're all going to fall asleep. I don't know what his strategy is. But, well, I do actually. He goes back strategically and especially to start with the, problem, with the promise to Abraham. He's got to go right back to the start. If you want an overview of the Bible that's brief in the whole Old Testament, how it fits together, Stephen really nails it. But notice, he goes back to Abraham and starts right there. God has said, Abraham, you're my man. And I want you to leave your land and to go to the land that I'm going to give you. And I know it's going to be hard because you're going far away from your own land to a new land and I want you to trust in me and do it. Now, was Abraham standing in a temple at the time? No, he was probably just standing out in the in a paddock in the back of nowhere. God spoke to him. God was present. No temple. This is a theme we're going to see in th throughout his speech. And it continues on then. Verse 5 to 7. But God gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. You see, 
Even though Abraham didn't experience the fullness of God's promises, he knew they would come true. He had faith in the future. He knew that God was reliable. And the way it was going to happen? Well, it was going to be 400 years in a foreign land. Not the promised land at all. That was where God was going to speak to him. Central to the identity of God's chosen people, a visible way of the promise keeping was the covenant of circumcision. He continues, verse 8, God also gave Abraham the covenant, the promise of circumcision at that time. And so when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day and the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 fathers of the Israelite nation. Now, who's he talking about here? Well, we're getting to the whole Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat bit, right? They're the 12. And it turns out that, well, he does want to mention that rather unfortunate period of history. Because he goes on to say, verse 9 and 10, these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. We know the story. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favour before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, God also gave Pharaoh unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. Now you might be thinking, what on earth has this got to do with the fact that you're anti-temple and you're anti-law? Is it just like what they talk about in, in politics? It's a, a filibuster where he just keeps talking and talking and talking and hoping that people will just get bored and walk away and say, wow, he's just full of hot air, get rid of him. No, he says this for a reason. Because he wants them to realise that God was present with his people in a foreign land. In a place that was not God's land, God was still there with his people. This is really important background information for the very charge that he's been had against him. And this is particularly clear when we see that he blessed his people by having them leave the promised land. We read on, verses 11 to 16, that a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, I'm with you guys, he's saying. He sent them to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. More information. But the point is that God is working amongst his people, even though they're far away from the promised land, far away from the place that the temple was going to be. Note that. Well, as they lived in Egypt, there was a new threat to the promises. We now flick over to the Exodus bit. So we're in the second book of the Bible. He's not going to cover them all, just to let you know. But we read on. He says, As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. They're far away from the promised land and they're under the harsh rule of a king who put them into slavery and and resorted to infanticide, the killing of infants. 
as a kind of form of genocide, a killing of a race. It was a mess. But God sent them a saviour. At that time, verse 20, Moses was born. A beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. And when they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. This is all happening away from the promised land. But God is with them. And it's worth noting that if any of these guys, these high priest heavy dudes, think that this is a, a guy who doesn't know his Bible, they've, they'd missed the point because he, he go pretty well in a, in a first year Old Testament lecture exam. You know, he gets the Bible really, really well. He's no idiot. But he's drawing together an important thread because now he shows how God sent a saviour for his people. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel, and he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defence and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed that his fellow Israelites would realise that God had sent him to rescue them. He's the saviour, I'm your guy, he's going to protect you. Uh, But they didn't. The next day, He visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting and he tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? A little bit like Stephen against the Jews fighting. You know, why is there need to be this fighting? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard that, He fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. He's trying to say, listen, you Jewish heavies, you guys, our people, have got form when it comes to ignoring the Saviour and rejecting God's will. You've got form. It's happened in the past. And it happened in a place far, far away from home as well. Because here we see God's people rejected the leader from God. It's like, I sent you Moses. Don't want him. I've come here to save you. Go away. And so he did. And Moses went out into the middle of nowhere. I mean, you think Egypt is in the middle of nowhere? No, 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 no. We're going to go out to the desert. Far away from anything. God wouldn't be there, would he? Well, verse 30, 40 years later, in the desert, so so he was 40 years old, another 40, he's getting pretty old now. Uh, Forty years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. This is the presence of the Lord out in the desert. It's the temple kind of thing, right? I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. These very, few, these very same people who don't like you. He ran away from the people he was sent to save. And now God is sending them back and saying, you've got to go back, mate. You've got to go and save them. And I'm going to be with you. Verse 35 
So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected. Sounding a bit like Jesus, isn't it? Sent back the same man the people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and saviour. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. You know, this bit at the start of the book of Exodus, quite possibly it is the most miraculous bit of the whole Old Testament. It's not like you're going to see the same sort of miracles of the plagues and the signs and all that kind and the Red Sea. You're not going to see that all smattered evenly throughout the Old Testament. It kind of goes in clusters that miracles accompanied a special era of salvation. So many of the Psalms talk about the Exodus like it's the big gospel event. And then when we get to the New Testament, there's something better than the Exodus. There's the Easter. There's the crucifixion of Jesus. But the point is that at this time in the Old Testament, there were heaps and heaps of miracles. Why? Because there was a massive display of God's power to save. And it all happened through Moses. And Moses then pointed to another time when they would have another leader. Verse 37. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai and there Moses received... Crazy. Uh, there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. And yet he was still rejected by the people. Acts 39, uh, 7.39. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses, like Jesus. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, he's too I see, Make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what's become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, head slap, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. They have got form in rejecting the leader and making idols and serving something else that they've made. Verse 42, then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Moloch, the star of your god Rephan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Here, Stephen is quoting from Amos, much further in the piece when it comes to the book of the Old Testament. But he is trying to make it very clear that because of their constant disobedience to God, they were punished. God punished his disobedient people. And with all of this in mind, he now tries to make the point about the tabernacle which was the kind of the mobile, portable temple. He says, verse 44, I'm speeding up here, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. 
Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out in this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. See, the symbolic presence of God was with them in that tent. But David and Solomon thought, no, we can't have him staying out in the backyard in a tent. We've got to give him a proper building. And so we read that David found favour with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. But there is an issue though. And so he says here in verse 48 to 50, However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Yeah, right. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? He says that God lives in heaven, not a building. And it's at this point now where we had Trevor earlier on read the bit where he then lays the boot into them. We've had this whole section here where Stephen has said, I've got to show you that I know the Bible and I know our sordid history where it was very, very clear that God was sending a messenger, a saviour, and our people rejected him time and time again. And you know what? We're doing it again. You're doing it again. And so he turns to them and he says, you stubborn people. He's a gutsy guy, Stephen. You stubborn people. You are heathen, pagans at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. In a sense, this sentence here is it summarises his whole speech. He says, I've just given you how much a history of how much form God's people have in saying no to God. Don't want to accept your leader. Don't want to accept your salvation. And what's more, he's made it clear that he can't be anti-temple because God, in a sense, is, doesn't care so much for the temple anyway. He's on about being with his people by his spirit, which is exactly how he is with Stephen, but not with those men who were rejecting him. Because like their ancestors, they resist God's word. They say no to God, will not listen. It's kind of like a, a toddler having a tantrum. They put their hands over their ear and go, la, 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 not listening, not listening. That is what these people are doing before this prophet, Stephen, who is there filled with the Holy Spirit, glowing like he's Moses in the presence of God. And he says to them, you guys are at risk of doing the same thing. And so he says, verse 52, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. I've got a feeling that Stephen thinks that he's got no chance of getting out of there alive, so he's just going to go all guns blazing. You know, this is just like Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the final scene. It's kind of like he knows he's got nothing. He knows he's going to go down. And he says, I want you to be very, very clear that you are guilty of this. And if you don't turn back, you are toast. 
He goes on to say, verse 53, you deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. Man, he puts the boot in. Uh, Jesus didn't speak like this to them. The apostles didn't. But Stephen, what a gutsy bloke, opens up both barrels and says, you guys are at serious risk and I give you a serious warning. And so he did. And the bottom line is he says that you rejected the law. They rejected the law and so they murdered the Messiah. You want to, you want to say that I'm anti-law? You guys are anti-law. Because if you had read the law, you would have followed Jesus as the Messiah. Now you would just hope that with this fire and brimstone pulpit thumping address by Stephen, that some people there would go, whoa, hang on a second, guys. Maybe he's got a point. I mean, yes, we've got form when it comes to rejecting the prophets. We've got form when it comes to saying no to God. I mean, if you were with us last term, book of Judges, do I need to say any more? I mean, it's all there. So how do they respond? We read that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him with rage. Imagine it, 70 people, all there in this whole big court area. Stephen is standing there glowing and they are yelling. They respond in rage. This is not going to work, not going to turn out well for Stephen, not humanly speaking. So how does he respond? Verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. What a sight. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. He says, I am now in the presence of God. I'm in the presence of his Messiah right now. And then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They silence him by stoning him. What do they do? They get big rocks and they throw them at him so that they will kill him. And it continues with a fascinating twist. Verse 58, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, who later would be known as Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was right there in the action. At this stage, Saul didn't know Jesus, but he was standing next to a bloke who did. And this guy was glowing. He was in the presence of the Lord Jesus and there was nothing they could say or do to shut him up. Imagine the impact of Saul as he stood there holding the coats of these tough guys who were getting all sweaty, picking up their big 20 kilo rocks and hurling them at this man who was now being covered in blood and bruises and put to death. 
And as they stoned him, verse 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that he died. He spoke like his Lord, didn't he? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Stephen prayed for his persecutors. He's a quality bloke, isn't he? He understood mercy. He understood the power of Jesus to save even those who were killing the man who was testifying to the Lord. It's a shocking end to this Christian man. Like his saviour, he was killed for speaking a message of truth and love. And yet again, we see the Jewish leaders at that time rejecting the message and killing the messenger. The same ones who were complicit in their mission to wipe out the message of Jesus as the Nazareth, this is the same group of people who are now killing Stephen. And you'd think that finally these people would get the message. Talk about Jesus and you're going to get smashed. But literally. Stop talking about it, hey? And what did they do? Well, we, I'm going to nick a verse from next week's passage, but chapter 8, verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. God used this to scatter them. And what did they do as they scattered? They didn't shut up a second about how good Jesus is. The believers were scattered, but they were empowered. As I've been reading this biography this last week about Ben Quashi, it is really upsetting to see the way that the northern part of Nigeria was overcome by a whole movement of Muslims to try and wipe out the Christians. And this particular event that had Ben Quashi's church and home burnt to the ground, there were 100 churches that were all damaged on that night or burnt to the ground and many people killed. You might think that it might shut Ben up. But let me read to you what he said. Today I still have the ashes of my house in Zaria. I keep them in my living room in a mock coffin to remind me that I died on the 12th of March 1987. They remind me and my children that every day I live is a bonus I'm living on extra time. We will never forget. And now as a man who was effectively dead, he's now alive, he invests every day telling people about Jesus. You really think you can shut up Ben Quashi by burning his house down? You idiots. All it's going to do is fire him up, which is exactly what it did. We started with the persecution of Ben Quashi, but we now have the perseverance of Ben Quashi. He's a great guy. He's an awesome evangelist. And he's a man who's passionate about Jesus. The evil one wants to shut down the church. But all he does is he, as he comes and persecutes us, 
is make us speak more and speak louder. And may that be the case more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for the courage of Stephen. And we thank you, Jesus, that you gave him that perseverance. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who filled up Stephen and led him to preach that powerful and passionate message. Father, would you please help us as we receive persecution and challenges to the faith to be louder and clearer and to not be worried about our own livelihood and our own bodies. Help us to have that same passion that your servant Ben Quashi and millions of others who are confronted by persecution have each day and their passion to keep talking about Jesus. We pray that we would have that same vision of Jesus standing, greeting the people who are brought before him as those who have been persecuted, the martyrs, and that we ourselves might speak the message for those who have been killed so that others might be warned and others would know the love of Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions, please ask a response slip or email me. Next week, we are looking at evangelism explosion. We're looking at another one of those seven awesome administrators, a guy called Philip, who was an awesome evangelist. And we're going to hear about that when we look at Acts chapter 8.